Let us open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. What a wonderful day we've already had. I hope that uh, you paid attention to those wonderful scriptures that were read. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, the first six verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the first seven verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the first 11 verses. And 1 Samuel chapter 12. We've had singing by which we conveyed wonderful truth to each other, speaking, teaching, and admonishing one another by songs, spiritual songs, and by hymns. Lord, we stand before Thee in Thy open Word. Convict us by it. Remind us from it. Show us the things that You would have us learn in this hour. I read to you four verses from 2 Peter chapter 1 that we will take up today in this first assembly, beginning at verse 12. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance." Amen and amen. This is another minister like Samuel who was not negligent. He was faithful, dedicated, committed, and loyal. The passage that you just had read to you from 1 Samuel 12 should have jerked tears from your eyes at the pain of that faithful man who from a child gave himself to that nation. And his recollection and review of some of the history of that nation and how they didn't have a king to lead them out of Egypt. But God raised up Moses and Aaron, not the bureaucratic mess that comes with a king. Right. And when other nations rose up against them, God raised up a succession of judges that are recorded in the book of Judges, but no king, because God was their king. Amen. But even though they rejected Him, and they were truly rejecting God... He told the nation that He would continue to pray for them and continue to teach them the good and the right way. And He was so much like Peter. In the words that I just read to you, in Peter's faithfulness to constantly be reminding them while he was alive, and he would endeavor by some means to remind them after he was gone. Which we just read. Because he put it in writing. And so we have the preserved words as Charlie just prayed all the way down to us from Peter's pen. And we are thankful. Remember where we have been already in this second epistle. We have obtained like precious faith with the apostles. Verse 1. Grace and peace are multiplied to us through a particular channel. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, His divine power 
has given to us everything that we need for life and godliness. Because He's called us to glory and virtue. Verse 4, we've been given exceeding great and precious promises. And by these promises we can partake of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We are then told, that was one sentence, that was one little sentence of Second Peter chapter 1, and it was jam-packed full of good things. And these things, Peter wanted to remind them of continually while he was alive and after he was gone. And then in verses 5 through 11, Peter taught that there were eight things that needed to be done. Those eight things are listed in verses 5 through 7. Faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. And if these things abound in a person, then they make that person fruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Everyone wants to raise their hand. Everyone wants to open their mouth. Yes, I know Him. But what counts is bringing forth those eight things and the other things like them that are taught in the New Testament. And that proves the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was grabbed last night by this horrible statement over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And why don't you go ahead and turn there with me and we'll get it out of the way because it's in my notes several times. The church at Corinth, who started it? Paul. How long was he there? Over 18 months. Remember, that's the place where the Lord appeared to him in the night and said, Do not be alarmed by the opposition you have in this city, for I have much people in this city. And so Paul stayed there and preached. And you know, there's this long chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 in which we delight because it is the chapter of the resurrection of the body. Cemeteries are a good place for us. We get to put our bodies to bed and there's no alarm clock except one. And it's going to be loud. And it's going to be the sound of a trumpet and the voice of the archangel. But this church forgot the doctrine of the resurrection because some men came up in their midst that taught there was no resurrection of the dead. I remind you of verse 2. By which also ye are saved. There is a gospel salvation that comes by knowing the truth of the gospel. This isn't getting our names written in the book of life. They were written there before the foundation of the world by the pure, sovereign, free grace of God in Jesus Christ by covenant. But here, Paul has mentioned in verse 1 that he had preached to these people in Corinth the gospel. And they had received that gospel and they were standing in that gospel and they would be saved by that gospel if they kept it in memory. Unless ye have believed in vain. The benefit of the gospel is to the degree that we keep it in memory and it affects our outlook and our actions. But here's the verse. Paul goes through this long string of reasoning. First of all, historical proof that Jesus rose from the dead. Then logical proof that Jesus rose from the dead. His logical proof included issues like, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then why are you baptized in a picture of resurrection from the dead? That's verse 29. But I want verse 34. Look at this in verse 33. Be not deceived. 
Evil communications corrupt good manners. And the good manners here are doctrinal manners. They are how to look at life, how to look at death, how to look at resurrection. Those are the good manners. It's not how to use your fork and knife. Evil communications are not necessarily, in this particular place, your friends at school. They are allowing teachers in a pulpit in a church that preach something contrary to what the apostles taught. Evil communications corrupt good manners, and don't be deceived about it. You people are messed up at Corinth. Awake to righteousness. The apostle says, wake up. Wake up and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. This little epistle that we're in of Second Peter, does Peter emphasize this word knowledge over and over and over again? Is it in verse 2? Is it in verse 3? Is it in verse 5? Is it in verse 6? Is it in verse 8? Is it in 2.20? Is it in 3.18? Is it there? Yes. Knowledge. Because it saves us while we're in this world. And these people had forgotten precious knowledge, and that is the resurrection of the dead at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that something that it's the same thing that Peter's concerned about over in 2 Peter chapter 1, that we would forget Jesus Christ is coming and we will stand before Him and we will want an abundant entrance into His everlasting kingdom. And there is a certain way to know that. And that is doing eight things. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. It is a shame when a church doesn't know the truth. And by God's grace, we will know the truth in this church. And we will fill ourselves with the Word of God. If you were prepared this morning, and there was plowed ground as was mentioned, then you heard wonderful passages of Scripture. You heard a wonderful set of priorities that Brother Leon read to you. You heard what is happening right now while you sit there to your body. It is dissolving right in front of you. And we heard men that knew and were confident, like the Apostle Paul, that it didn't matter, and he was willing to shed this old body to get one that was made in heaven for him and waiting to be pulled out of the closet and put on. And that's a glorified body that we'll have for eternity. And then we heard about the faithful minister from 1 Samuel 12. Okay, brethren, back to Second Peter chapter 1. There were wonderful things in the first 11 verses. That first sentence that runs from verse 1 through 4 was jam-packed full of what God has done for you and how you can live a victorious Christian life, escaping the corruption that is in the world through lust. It is a choice. Being a partaker of the divine nature, it is a choice. It's given to us by exceeding great and precious promises to stir us up. It's given to us by the knowledge of God and by Jesus Christ. And the more we know about God, true, experiential knowledge of Him, and the more we know of the Lord Jesus Christ, the more we will live that virtuous life because He's called us to glory and virtue, and He will give us power while we're doing it. That was in the first four verses. You may get it again next Sunday. And I, I'm smiling because it, it is a wonderful, it is a wonderful sentence. And I, for many years, struggled with this sentence because I was trying to work the legal and vital phases of salvation into it when it is primarily the practical phase of salvation because it comes via knowledge, which is part of the practical phase of salvation and it comes via promises 
which is part of the practical phase of salvation. When a person really believes the exceeding great and precious promises of God, do you want to know what happens to them? They escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. Do you know why? Because they stomp their lust into the ground. Because of the exceeding great and precious promises that are held out before them. But now Corinth had lost the exceeding great and precious promises. So they had lost the knowledge of God. So Paul had to, had to yell at them, I think, in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, wake up and sin not. Because they were sinning because, you know, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all miserable, so we ought to add a little spice to life. I, I, oh no. Our best life is not now. Right. Our best life is coming. Amen. All of that was to remind you of where we are in Second Peter chapter 1. I don't ever want you to think that there are four verses that can just be jerked out of their context and we can get a good sense of what they mean. Because every all verbal communication has a context to it and it's the context that gives it its greatest power and weight and meaning for us. Amen. So when the apostle says in verse 12, wherefore, you know he's appealing back to something. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. He says these things there. And he says these things again in verse 15. What are the things? Well, it's the things of verses 1 through 11. Jesus Christ is coming. There's exceeding great and precious promises of things yet to occur for you. And there's ways in which you can know that you will get an abundant entrance into heaven. You, you might, you know, we don't want to be trying to sneak through a crack. We want an abundant entrance into heaven. Ministered to us. Angels welcoming us. Because it's ministered by ministers which are servants to us into heaven. When we walk out of these doors... After all that we've just had for one hour, the men joined men in the back room to begin with prayer one hour ago. When we walk out of these doors, the world is going to assault us. It is going to bombard us. It is going to crush us with other inputs that make this horizontal plane all that matters. They will take away the exceeding great and precious promises. We're going to try to find hope and fulfillment on this plane and the reason we come in here is to get our sight elevated toward heaven. Amen. Because everything that you are going to do that is on this plane is vanity and vexation of spirit. But there is a life waiting for us that is eternal. It is permanent. It is wonderful. It is perfect. It is just covered up with exceeding great and precious promises. And the reason we come in here is for these few hours that we have out of the 168 of a week is to be reminded and to be reminded and to be reminded of these things. That there is power for victorious living by what God has already done for us. That Jesus Christ is coming and there is eternal heaven that will put the 70 or 80 years of this life absolutely in the garbage bin. And there are ways to know that that life is yours. So we need reminders. So Peter said, wherefore, wherefore, because of what I just told you, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. If it is exceeding great and precious promises, 
that help us escape the corruption that is in the world through lust, that help us become partakers of the divine nature, then we need to be reminded of the exceeding great and precious promises. Are you all with me? I want to make this so simple, it's like eating a piece of candy. It is a piece of candy. Right. David didn't know about candy. So what did David say? It's like honey in the honeycomb. Wherefore, I will not be negligent because of the importance, because of the value, because of the great events that are coming yet in the future, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. Ministers can become negligent by various factors that compromise their preaching. Too many administrative matters can cost precious time in God's Word. Too much socializing, which may be good for politicians, is not so good for pastors. Losing focus on the goal of preaching, which is Christ, heaven, and holiness. Amen. And that's all there in the first 11 verses. Christ, heaven, and holiness. Pastors must focus on two things, the doctrine and their personal lives, to be an example of it. And he must insistently press to duties with reminders to people. When it says over there in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Now that's a job description that's easy to remember. Preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. But what does it mean to be instant? You know, everything today is instant. There's instant pudding and there's instant oatmeal. But when it says be instant, what does it mean? To, to be insistent, to be pressing and to be urgent upon God's people. That's what it means. You know, I was once taught that it meant that a minister should be able to be called upon and be able to rise to his feet and preach a sermon. Yes. But all you have to do is read the word instant in the rest of the Bible and where men spoke instantly, like at the cross, where they were pressing and urgent and pushing on the Lord Jesus Christ to come down off the cross. But it means to be pressing upon God's people. And so I'm here today to press on you. Lord, help us to do that. I already mentioned to you Titus 2.15, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Titus chapter 2 and verse 15. That's what ministers should do. Sometimes they're negligent. And that doesn't get done. And there's a lot of churches today where there isn't a constant affirming of good works for those that have believed in God. There's a lot of other junk going on. But we want to press what the Bible tells us to. We use as many tools as we can. When I say we, I'm, I'm speaking about our whole church, but I'm speaking about your pastor. We use as many tools as we can to instruct, remind, and warn God's people. We have three services a week. Not one service as so many have chosen. Are you still all in agreement with three services a week? Amen. Know that I love you, but do I really care? It's not me. Listen, I'd rather have four than two. We have three, not one. And you don't get sermonettes. You get reminders. And you have the least of all the servants that Jesus Christ has ever chosen to be your pastor, but you have three and not one. We have three services a week. I can't believe what's happened to Baptist churches in my little lifetime. All Baptist churches had at least three services a week. Two on Sunday, morning and evening, and one on Wednesday. Then they dropped the Wednesday. 
Then they drop the Sunday evening. And there's just one little one hour, 70 minute service on Sunday morning. It's incredible in a lot of Baptist churches. Lord save us from that. You know, we send six proverb commentaries, two weekly updates, and a preparatory note in advance of what's going to happen on Sunday. Those 12 exhortations and reminders from God's Word are, are done publicly and privately. I get them right into your house. It's as if I drove by your house and slid them under the door on a piece of paper because they're sitting there in your inbox, which needs to be accessed once in a while. And listen, it's not for me. Do you know what I could do in a week if I only had to preach one service? My golf game would fall drastically. It's disgusting. I hope today we've all been encouraged by hearing about Samuel because we're going to hear about Peter right now, but Samuel, he gave his whole life to that nation. And he gave it faithfully. You know, these are 12 exhortations that come to you. I counted them up last night. You know, if I give, if I give you uh, five hours for today, 8.30 to 1.30, if I give you three hours for Wednesday night, you know, we're up to eight. I, or, I, it, it takes 10 hours. Okay, it takes 10 hours. 10 hours of your precious time, dear ones. 10 hours. Do you know how many hours there are in a week? Have I taught you that well enough that you can do it without the math? Nobody's pulling out calculators. 168 hours in a week. And the totality of the effort that I make to remind you takes 10 to read it thoughtfully and carefully and to click on a few links in the updates. 10 hours. What would a tithe be? 17 hours. How many hours are you on the job? 50? Wow, 118 hours left over. How many do you sleep? 56? Do you mean to tell me that we have another 62 hours? Okay, because here's the, here's the problem. And it's, it's, the, it's, it's from the Lord to you, and I just happen to be in the middle. Ministers are one half the relationship, and you're the other half. We can have these 12 exhortations, but if you just flush the proverb commentaries and say, I already know that, here's the problem. Peter said, they already know that. Right. I already know that you know that. But do you know what? That doesn't matter because we forget and we need to be reminded. And there's 915 commentaries. And if there's anybody in here that has a memory and a conviction and a soul of such a high magnitude that they can remember everything that was conveyed in a proverb 915 plus... 135 Sundays when they read it the last time, introduce yourself to me after the service because I haven't met you before. And same here. You know, I read those things and I'll say, who in the world wrote this? I'll come running out of my office to Sherry. Who wrote that? Look at that paragraph. We're in trouble. Look at the opportunity of that. Proverb. I'm nothing. This is nothing about me. This is all about us together as a church to be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ that pleases our Father in heaven. You know, there's another church over there off of Brushy Creek Road called a Bible Church. 
And there's other churches in Greenville County called a Bible church. I want our church to be more biblical than any of those Bible churches. And this I can tell you, we've already had more Bible than they're going to have all day today and Wednesday night if they meet. Well, that doesn't prove anything. Because Peter said, though ye know them and though ye be established in the present truth, I'm going to keep reminding you. Because having it stored up here and having it in our feet to lead us in the path of righteousness are two very different things. There's a lot that can happen from here to there. I know it's only about four feet, ten inches distance, or some short distance from here to there. But a lot of things happen in between, don't they? Don't we all know that? That's why we have Second Peter 1, 12 through 15. We walk out of these doors, we're going to get lamb-blasted. While you're sitting there right now, you have a war going on inside of you, every single one. How much can you focus on what I am saying and the sense of these words from Scripture and the sense of my explanation of them because of your flesh? The world and the devil, the devil can be in here. Lord, have mercy upon us and put a hedge about us right now and deliver us from the powers of darkness that would steal away the Word of God. We read in your Scriptures the parable of the sower that Jesus said, Satan comes and snatches away the Word of God lest they should be converted. Heavenly Father, grant that we will be converted this day. There are false teachers out there. You go home and click on that internet and you can get anybody to preach anything that you might want to hear. Notice what I said. You might want to hear. We come into the house of God not to hear what we might want to hear, but what we need to hear. Because it's profitable and needful that we hear these things. I am going to continue. Three. Services a week. Six proverb commentaries. And we may add something to replace them in the near future. Two updates. And a preparatory email. But they're only as good as they're read. Total of ten hours. You get to spend eight of those vegging in a pew. Two require some initiative. For you, you're good. I want all of you to hear the words. There's nothing else that we can do. You might as well go home and get your house in order because you're going to die in the next three weeks. I want you to have the knowledge and the confidence that Matthew read to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and there's only one way to get it. And that is by constant reminding. And though I send it into your inbox, you've got to open that inbox and read it, not just flush it. If ministers are negligent in their duties, the saints will be negligent in theirs. Churches seldom ever rise above the faithfulness of their pastors. Families seldom, other than exceptions, ever rise above the faithfulness of their fathers. Example, instruction, atmosphere, and tone for godliness is set by pastors in churches and by fathers in homes. We know what these things are. You know, it's a shame that people can forget these things. That uh, Peter is here saying that he's going to remind them constantly. There are other things in the grace of God. Turn back just a few pages to Hebrews chapter 13. These things are what we want to be reminded of. The wonderful, wonderful things of the first 11 verses of 2 Peter 1. And included in there, it's Christ, heaven, and holiness. You say, where's holiness over there? It's the combination of faith, virtue, knowledge, godliness, patience, temperance, brotherly kindness, and charity. That's what it is. 
It's the combination of all those things. Hebrews 13.9, Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. A warning. Paul, to many Jewish Christians in Judea and its surrounding areas, be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. So there's a temptation to get led off of this path of Christ, heaven, and holiness. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. To go back and look at the Old Testament sacrifices and what the shadows meant and what the furniture meant and what the rituals meant and what the sacrifices meant, just forget all that stuff. Peter's saying, let the heart be established with grace. What is grace? God chose you before the foundation of the world to an eternity in heaven. He covenanted with the Lord Jesus Christ by covenant as the Word of God to come and die for you. Jesus Christ has returned to heaven graciously preparing mansions for you and He's coming again for you to declare that you are His brother to the universe and to God Himself. Grace. Let your heart be established with grace. Because we can be distracted. In reviewing our church history recently, we've been saved from many such side issues, brethren. We don't preach politics in this church because we don't care. We will pray for our church more than anyone that preaches politics from their pulpit. I've been around ministers that preach politics from their pulpit and like to talk about politics on the side, but they don't pray for their nation the way that we pray for our nation. And let's even up the ante about the way we pray for our nation. We're not going to change anything. When we're given an opportunity to exercise our rights as citizens, we'll use those rights. Until then, we will pray and give thanks, and we will focus on the things that are important. We are citizens of a holy nation that is far more important than the United States of America. That's just one example. We've been saved from many such side issues. I don't preach conspiracies. I don't preach any kind of conspiracies except the conspiracy of sin that the devil is behind that gets a hold of every one of us. There is spiritual wickedness in high places, and high places is not 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, nor is it the United Nations in New York. It's devils. And we make war against them by putting on the whole armor of God, not by putting armor or weapons in our closets at home. That doesn't mean you can't have any there. As you should all know, there are many topics, some of them may be biblical, that are unprofitable for our souls in comparison. These other topics are often well-received and it presses ministers to want to preach them. We want to emphasize what the apostles stressed. Christ and Him crucified His gracious salvation, His coming and His judgment and the need of good works. We must avoid everything that appeals to the flesh or is considered part of the perilous times by many. You know, most people look at politics as being perilous to us. It's not going to be perilous to us. You know, if Christians were taken out and shot, I can tell you that you're your month of time spent in prayer and your love of Christ would go up dramatically. Right. Or you would say, I'm not a Christian to save your, your little body from taking a bullet or a chemical or whatever. Right. So it's not politics, it's not health, it's not literacy, it's not disease, it's not water for the Sudanese children, the things that everybody else gets all wrapped up with and concerned about. It is not those things It is living a holy and dedicated and committed and spiritual and holy life in the midst of an ungodly, unholy, unthankful generation of Christians that 
have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Brethren, when, it, when the apostle says, wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, it is not just memory of them. That's a minor part. It's application of them. Peter wasn't just saying, I hope that you can answer a quiz about the things that I gave in chapter 1 and verse the first 11 verses. If a church can recite sound doctrine and answer questions, it matters little. Same with the pastor. The truth of the gospel must be brought to their minds so as to change their lives. We want changed lives in our church. Constant bombardment of our minds must be offset by repetitive exhortations for us to put these things into practice. Marital things. Employment things. Financial things. Thought things. Speech things. Time management. It's not just memorizing them. Do you know how easily you are carnally minded rather than spiritually minded? Do you know how easily you focus on things on the earth, not on things above? You know, it's almost like we want to put, we want to tell the Lord to put everything on hold for a little while. I'm having just a little too much fun down here and if you'll just hold off a little bit, I'll be able to do even greater things. You know, you're saying to, well, I would never say anything like that. Well, your lives, often reflect it. And then same here. We get tempted that way because our flesh is so weak. My eyes only work horizontally until I come into the house of God, just like Asaph. Asaph was looking around and he was envious at all the wicked. He was saying, they don't live like I do. I'm washing my hands in vain and cleansing myself in innocency and with no profit to it. They're living wickedly and look at their, their fat and prospering and happy. Then he went into the house of the Lord and he was told, this is what's going to happen to the wicked. This is what happens to the righteous. And he said, I was like a dumb beast before you. I was so stupid to say anything like that. Amen. Lord, there's no one in earth or in heaven that I desire beside thee. And I know that when I leave this place, you're going to take my hand and lead me right into glory. Right. Now that changes things fast, doesn't it? Amen. And it happened in one psalm for us. It's Psalm 73. And that's why we need to be reminded when we come here. And this is what Peter's talking about in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Do you know how hard you work for earthly things rather than how hard you work for holiness? Why do things that Peter presented in the first 11 verses and in the five chapters of his first epistle require stirring up hearers to remember them? That just doesn't make sense. Did Peter present some pretty important things in the first epistle? Did he present some pretty important things in the 11 verses? Why do we need reminding They're by far the weightiest things we've ever heard in our lives. The coming of Jesus Christ, I'm going to use this word again, the coming of Jesus Christ is so transcendent that it dwarfs, crushes, and annihilates every other event in human history. Not the cross, because that's important, but human history. You know, the discovery of America. You know, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in, I think, 1492 or something like that. In three little goofy boats. You know, when you look at world events, there is an event coming that crushes them all. Right. Why do we forget it? This is a proof of our depravity and inherent rebellion against God. We are His children. We are born again. We have a new man. And we still forget the great things He has in store for us. And we get wrapped up down here. And we get discouraged. And life is just so hard. 
and I'm so tired, and I don't know if I can go on. So we need to come into the house of the Lord. Amen. And we need to sing, crown Him with many crowns. As we did. And we need to hear the Word of God presented to us again and get excited and get stirred up. As Peter is going to say, we need to get stirred up. How would Peter have written that? Or how would the Holy Spirit have written that if it would have been in 2015? That we need to get jacked up. That we need to get lifted up. That we want to get intense about the things of God. And so we have reminders. It's, an, it's a proof of our depravity. Here is another evidence of the competition for our attention and our affection. There's a lot of competition. And never before in the history of the world has the world been able to get so much right in front of your eyes and in your ears as right now. And so we need these reminders more than anybody's ever needed them. From that perspective, Lord help us. Thank you, Peter, for emphasizing this to us. What do we need to remember? The knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that Peter has stressed in this particular epistle. Peter is going to say this in chapter 3, verse 17. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before. Beloved, seeing you already know these things, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. We can easily fall from our own steadfastness by watching others living wickedly, seeming to get away with it. We will forget what we've already been taught. And so there needs to be constant reminders. If we spend five hours together on the Lord's Day with two of those hours being preaching, there's still 168 in a week. You will not hear outside God's assemblies anything for your spiritual good. The world's going to bombard you from the time you leave with everything bad. It's going to try to steal away. The devil's going to try specifically to steal away the seed of the Word of God that's been sown in your mind. You're going to get out of here and you're going to say, now it's time for my life. I gave the Lord His time. Now what can I do? What can I do to enjoy life? Listen, singing crown Him with many crowns should be the most enjoyable thing you've done yet this week. I was ready to get Pentecostal. And I mean that in the limits of God's Word. I read about a man that was healed in Acts chapters 3 and 4. He wasn't sitting still on some chair saying some mild amen every 15 minutes. He was running around and jumping up and down because he had just been healed by Peter. Peter had said to him, Silver and gold have I none, but what I have give I thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. And that that man just didn't stand up and walk. He ran about leaping in the temple for joy. And listen, all he was saved from is two dead legs. Big deal. What have we been saved from? An eternity in hell. Lord, help us to glory in heaven forever. Though ye know them. Verse verse 12. Listen, we will not proceed at the same pace through these four verses. (laughs) Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them. Don't tell me you know them. Show me you know them. Show me you know them, and we'll switch the emphasis in our church a little bit. Just show me. Don't tell me. Though ye know them, it is painful. Hear a little confession. It is painful for pastors to preach things already preached or already known. 
Pastors know that a good steward brings forth new and old things. Matthew 13 and verse 52, Jesus said that. Pastors want to be creative, original, and unique to maximize their calling. Diligent and faithful pastors cringe at preaching the same thing. Till they read 2 Peter 1, 12 through 15. Then they say, thank you, Lord, I'm going to go do it again. I'm going to go do it again. There was Samuel at, you know, who knows how old he was, but he was old. And he was going to keep doing it. Do you understand that? Listen, I know you want to come in and you want to hear something new. You know, you, you want, you're just really bothered about the two witnesses of Revelation 14. If I was to explain to you the, the two witnesses of Revelation 14, how would it help you be a better husband, wife, and everything else that you need to be over this coming week? That doesn't mean that there's not a blessing in knowing the two witnesses. But the two witnesses are describing a period of time that's, that's already over. So uh, it's of little consequence to us in comparison to this right here. Amen. And so when people continue to write me and ask, what are the two witnesses in Revelation? They don't know anything about Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 2. They've never studied the book of Daniel, but they want to know about the two witnesses. You know what those are? Itching ears. They want to be scratched with something other than having God's duties for their personal, practical lives being pressed on them. Paul repeated things to put the brethren in reminders. Look at, look at Romans 15, 15 quickly with me. The Apostle Paul was the same way as Peter. Reminding, reminding. Romans 15, 15. Though they knew these things. Nevertheless, brethren, I'm reading Romans 15, 15. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God. And so he's putting things in their mind that they knew to remind them of things that they ought to remember. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Why did Paul say that to write the same things is not grievous? Because there is a temptation for it to be grievous. I don't want to bore the children again with another devotions tonight about living a godly and holy life. You don't? I'll tell you what's going to happen. It's profitable. Look at what Paul said. It is safe. How do we save children? How do we save families? Philippians 3.1 To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. And so off he goes again on the dogs of the Jews and their concision, worried about circumcision. And he goes down through and he talks about his race to win the, the high calling of God that is in Christ Jesus and to know Christ. He talks about belly worshipers in verses 18 and 19. And then, of course, he brings up the second coming of Jesus Christ in verses 20 and 21. These things are safe for us. They're safe. But I'm telling you, as a pastor, you like to bring up the old things. I mean, you like to bring up new things. Excuse me, new things. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul told Timothy that a good minister does this. 1 Timothy 4, 6, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. If you put the brethren in remembrance, you'll be a good minister. Well, that's easy enough to read. And that isn't a pastoral epistle, isn't it? So we remind you.
You don't need to tell the pastor that you already know what's being taught. I've heard this comment over the years. You know, I've got something coming up, and I saw what what you're going to be preaching on on Sunday, and, you know, I already know that. I don't think I need much help in that area. And since I've got this other issue, do you mind if... And you know, a pastor cringes. Yeah, I know. It's old stuff. But between this hour that we have together right now and the next time that we get together right now, 168 hours from now, you will be assaulted. And if you open your mouth and say, I already know that, you are violating 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12 where it says, Therefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Amen. We need these reminders. Good, right? they're, they're safe. They're safe. I love safety. I'm not a big risk taker. I love safety. And Paul told us how to be safe and that's to make lots of reminders. You know what kind of people can endure sound doctrine, don't you? the ones with itching ears that fill the churches of the perilous times of the last days. We want to endure sound doctrine. We don't want to just endure it. We want to embrace it. Lord, remind me today of the crucial, important facts of the Gospel, the present truth that was established in the days of the apostles about Christ, heaven, and holiness. Can I make it easy for you? Christ, heaven, and holiness. The Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Heaven is the object, so we want to set our affection on things above and not on things on the earth. And the holiness that proves that we're going there, without which no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12. The regular repetition of basic doctrines and calls to godliness are valuable. Most churches today pander to carnal Christians or reprobates with their fables. The cure for the perilous times is preaching the word. Not a new word, the old word. Compromising Christians and evil seducers would get worse and worse, according to Paul's prophecy in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 13. So though they knew some things, Peter was going to remind them because the evidence is that men forget quickly. Galatians chapter 1, Paul wrote the churches of Galatians, Galatians and he said, do you know what he said? I, I marvel. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to another gospel, which is not another, because there isn't another. There's only one true gospel. I marvel who hath bewitched you. That's Paul writing to the churches of Galatia. Look at the Corinthians that I've already shown you. How could they forget the doctrine of the resurrection? Every time they had a baptism, they're supposed to be reminded of the resurrection of the body. And uh, they were forgetting it. Consider how quickly the different generations of Israel forgot the things they had learned in the previous generation. Right. You know, when you're, re- when you're reading Joshua, and they're taking the whole land of Canaan, it's just, it's, Im- it's powerful. The Lord was with them. And then it gets to the end, and it tells us, as it ends the book of Joshua, and it opens the book of Judges, As soon as the elders that were part of Joshua's generation were gone, off went the church. The whole church of Israel. You know, their big fancy homes that they had that God built for them. All the furniture in them that God bought for them. 
their vineyards that God planted for them, their wells that God dug for them, their city infrastructure and the walls that God built for them, all those blessings of a land flowing with milk and honey, they just thought they had it made. And they could, you know, who cares about living a holy life? We've got it made in the shade. But you know what they needed to do is sackcloth and ashes and to get down on their knees and beg God to forgive them and to be reminded. Remember, there were things happening right then that were corrected in Nehemiah chapter 8. Do you remember a particular feast? There were three feasts, three big feasts. One feast was forsaken for a thousand years. Remember? The Feast of Booths. But with the reading of God's Word in that great preaching service of Nehemiah 8, they were reminded about the Feast of Booths and they celebrated it with great gladness. And that's the way we want to be when we come in here. Thank you, Lord, for putting me under the sound of your Word, the reminders of your Word. I know that I've got many parts to my life and I know that you have set a standard for me in each one of those parts and I want to do it. Thank you for reminding me today. Thank you that it wasn't something new to distract us. Thank you for a pastor that brings us back to what counts. Christ, heaven, and holiness should be our attitude. And you're established in the present truth. We're still in verse 11 at the moment. Established. We're still in verse 12, excuse me. Established in the present truth. The present truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was new. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. This is Peter writing in somewhere around 60 A.D., reminding these people that had been preached to by Paul that were out in the province of Asia, of the Roman Empire, that they were established in the present truth. Peter is saying, I know you know these things because Paul taught you them. I know you know these things because I wrote them to you in my first epistle. I know that you're established in the present truth because you are baptized believers of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that. But it is still safe for hearers to be reminded of those things because out there, no one's going to remind us. And we need to be reminded. Yes, I want to live for the Lord. Who is going to suggest or press you to live for the Lord this week? Outside of our assembly. Lord, I need those reminders. Thank you for 2 Peter 1.12. Thank you for encouraging our pastor by 2 Peter 1.12-15. through 15. By nature, all men tend toward belly worship and forget the precious truth. We've got Satan, the world, and our flesh after us, and false teachers are everywhere. And there's a whole brand of Christians around us that walk up to us with a big smile, and they're so gracious and so kind, and they may be the nicest people you've ever met, including this church. And they love Jesus. They just love Jesus. They have a cross around their neck. They have a cross on their keychain. They have a cross dangling from their rearview mirror. They love Jesus. I just love Jesus. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. And you're thinking, boy, I never thank Jesus that much. And pretty soon you feel condemned because you're around these mouthy people with another Jesus that are preached another gospel and have another spirit in them. You say, well, how can a spirit be so nice because they're some of the nicest people I've met? Are you, you need help on that? Really? Really? 
Do you think the devil comes up to you and he's got ashes all over him because he's been to hell? And so he's coming back and he's got his red pitchfork and he's got that tail back there twitching back and forth. And he says, I want to take you to hell with me. Let's hate Jehovah and his son Jesus together. The devil doesn't do that. The Bible says he becomes an angel of light and a minister of righteousness. Right. There's going to be a whole lot of people, Lord, Lord, they know how to call Jesus Lord, that have done miracles, that have cast out devils, and that have preached in his name. The present truth is the gospel, and what a wonderful thing the gospel is. It includes the second coming of Jesus Christ. You can be established in present truth intellectually, but who are the real Christians in our church? It doesn't matter how fast you can answer questions. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you can quote. Who is living the holy life that matches up with the heaven described and the Christ of that heaven? That's what we want. It's one thing to be established in the present truth now, but what of tomorrow? Because we can lose it so fast. Do you think that Paul could have preached to Corinth before he left? You are established in the present truth? Do you think that he was? Of course he Of course that church was. Excuse me. The church. Was the church at Corinth established in the present truth? It was. But it lost it. Were the Galatians that Paul had founded those churches, were they established in the present truth? They were. But they lost it. Lord help us. Verse 13. Yea. Yes. He's he's convincing himself of the glory of and the importance and the safety and the benefit of what he's describing here. Yea. I think it meet. You know what that word means? It means appropriate, suitable, fit. When the Bible says, it was not good for the man to be alone, so I will make him an help. Meet for him. A suitable, appropriate, fit wife, which is what Eve was for Adam. Yeah, I think it meet. I think it appropriate and I think it right and suitable as long as I am in this tabernacle, meaning his earthly body, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. I want to stir you up. I am writing this epistle. I am reaching out to you a thousand miles from Babylon to the, to the Roman province of Asia to stir you up about these things. I want to stir you up to think about heaven. I want to stir you up to think about Christ and what He's accomplished for you. And I want to stir you up that there are things you can and should be doing to be fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to make your calling and election sure. And you, my brethren, are under the sound of that reminding today. And we should together be thankful. I'm thankful for these four verses. They encourage me, and I want them to encourage you. We come in here to be reminded of the basics. Because you know as soon as we go out of here, no one is going to talk about the Jesus Christ of the Bible. They are not going to talk about heaven as being the real reward for your labors. They are going to be presenting everything else to you as substitute rewards that are nothing but soap bubbles. They're not going to be telling you that there's an eternal judgment coming. And they're not going to be telling you what it takes to avoid that by the way of evidence. You know, there's a band of Christians out there, those people that are mouthing Jesus. You'll ask them, how do you know that you're going to heaven? Because I invited Jesus into my heart. Well, the verse that they're corrupting to get there doesn't even teach that. They don't have a clue. Can some of them be saved? Maybe. God's great enough 
And His grace is gracious enough. But there's a, there's a lot of serious problems with that other Jesus. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle. Thankfully, did you, did you notice how Peter says, as long as I am in this tabernacle? Well, who is Peter? You know, if, if we saw Peter walking on the sidewalk, we would point and say, that is Peter. And what are we pointing at? His tabernacle. But Peter says, as long as I am in this tabernacle. So there's different parts of us. Right. And you know, the more important part is the one that can love Christ. Amen. And serve Him. And, and Peter was in his tabernacle, in his earthly body, and he's saying, as long as I'm alive on earth, I think it's appropriate and good and right and safe and profitable to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. So I'm going to keep writing the same things. So we read the first epistle of Peter and get those five chapters. Then we read the second epistle, verses 1-11. through 11, And we look at them and we say, there really ain't much new here. You know, we've obtained like precious faith. Well, of course, we're believers. Add to your faith virtue. Yeah, we know that. I read about the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. Add to your virtue knowledge. You already mentioned that, Peter, in verses 2 and 3. I know that knowledge is important to you. We need to be reminded of these things. And Peter is saying, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to do it. Because while we're in these bodies, these bodies want to pull us down. We still have flesh attached to us that loves the world and submits to Satan and will listen and give an ear to false teachers. Paul said of the Corinthians, I'm afraid of you that you might well bear with some false teachers if they would stand up and start preaching in the church at Corinth, though that was his church that he had started. This earthly house is a tabernacle. It's only a tent, a temporary building. I love the word tabernacle for our bodies. It's temporary. We have a permanent one coming in heaven, made by God. The body you got at conception had a default life expectancy of about 70 years. You bought some damaged goods. You say, I didn't buy them. I didn't ask for them. They were pushed on me. Yep. You have a default to 70 years. Planned obsolescence is part of God's plan for you. You say, I hate planned obsolescence. God planned it for you because of what you did in your first parents in Eden. Planned obsolescence and self-destruction are working in everybody, every body, because of sin. Every health idea you consider, sin is the basic cause of disease and death. I get so tired of reading this idea and that idea about better health, they never address the root problem of bad health. Do you know what the root problem of bad health is? Do you know what the root problem of death is? Sin. 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 It isn't because you ate processed carbohydrates in a box called cornflakes. It's not because you went to McDonald's and ate, ate horse meat and drank a shake that should be called plastic fat. Or whatever else you want to say about it. It isn't those things. I get so tired of, well, if you eat this, and if you do this, no, it's sin. And it is, it is clutching at us right now, and I've been through that list before. Oh, did you, did you, did you hear the reading of Ecclesiastes 12, verses 1 through 7? That is one of the most beautiful metaphors in the entire Bible. All those descriptive phrases were talking about different body parts. 
It's glorious. The way the Bible is written, that short little way of just telling us we're falling apart. As long as I'm in this body, Peter said, I'm going to remind you and stir you up by way of remembrance. Just remember that Peter wasn't alone in his tabernacle. When he said, yeah, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle, it's good for all of us to think that we're not alone in our tabernacle. You know that someone else is in there with you? The Holy Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What? Know ye not? That your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Which is in you? Which ye have of God? And ye are not your own? There's a ye are bought with a price in there somewhere. But which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? To stir you up. We come in here to get stirred up. The singing should stir you up. The praying should stir you up. Being around the brethren of like precious faith should stir you up. The reading of God's Word should stir you up. The preaching of God's Word should stir you up. We want to be stirred up, meaning that we want to be roused to action, activity, or emotion, to rouse from indifference or sloth, to incite, instigate, stimulate, to excite, provoke, induce, to get us excited and enthusiastic and zealous and committed to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. We forget, we, do, we, we fall down without these constant reminders. It's it, Watching athletes, the Bible tells us that we should think about athletes. It tells us numerous times we should think about athletes. Athletes constantly need to be encouraged and provoked. They have personal trainers that will rattle their beds, jerk them out of bed, and make them go do certain things at certain times, will not let them eat certain things at certain times, will remind them of a gold medal, will show them a picture, will put them a saying on the refrigerator, will put one in the bathroom mirror, anything to remind them constantly that they need to be giving their all for that stupid, worthless, vain and vexing, earthly, corruptible crown. And in a game, when a coach senses that his team is losing focus, bang! Time out! Time out! And as soon as they hear the whistle blow for time out, and they look over and see the color of his face, they are not looking forward to the chat they're about to have for somewhere between 30 and 60 seconds on the sideline. But they are about to have their focus refocused. Then they have halftime where it's longer than 60 seconds. And hopefully you're a lineman that's bigger than the coach. Because if you messed up in the first half, he is going to come after you to get you refocused to go back out there and do what you're supposed to do. And we come into the house of the Lord for the same thing. And Peter was one great coach because he said, as long as I am alive, even though I'm getting old, I am going to keep reminding you because I know, verse 14, I know that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle. I know that I'm getting near. Listen, this is 35 years. This is 30, 35 years after Jesus left the earth. Um, How do I know that? Because Peter's going to write in chapter 3 that he already knows the epistles of Paul that make up the New Testament. So Peter's one of the last things written, 2 Peter. So this is somewhere in the mid-60s. It's 35 years later. He's He's a much older man now. If he was 35 when he met Jesus, he was already married. We don't know how old he was. The Bible doesn't tell us. Now he's 70. And so he knows that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Do you know that Peter is one of the few men in the history of the world that knew how they were going to die? Look at John chapter 21. Let's read it quickly. John chapter 21. John 21. In verses 15 through 17 of this chapter, Jesus challenges Peter as to whether he loves him or not. 
three times for each time that he had denied his Lord. Verse 18, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Peter, I have something to say to you personally and specifically. When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. He's middle-aged of some sort in here now. But when thou shalt be old, when you get old, and the Bible tells us that old age is around 70, when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. How would you like to be told with a man that you're following, you're going to die by crucifixion by having your hands stretched out and you being carried where you don't want to go? Follow me. Did Peter follow him? Yes, Peter followed him. And so he says here in the second half of verse 14, Even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me, those words are not describing the timing of Peter's death. They're describing the manner of Peter's death. Knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me in the manner of doing that. Jesus didn't say anything about when he would die except when thou art old. And that covers quite a range of time. Moreover, verse 15, I will endeavor that she may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. I will endeavor. And that, that endeavoring included the writing of the second epistle and the first epistle because we are still being reminded of these very things right. by having them listed in the first 11 verses of Second Peter chapter 1. After my decease, I will endeavor. I'll endeavor before I decease. But I will endeavor that after my decease ye may be able to have these things always in remembrance. That doesn't mean that they would remember them, but they would be able to. Do you know the value of the Word of God, which we consider very, very high? A heritage for our families. More important to us than our necessary food are the kind of things that we say about it. It is more precious to us and more valuable than gold and fine gold. It is sweeter to our taste than honey in the honeycomb. That Bible... Only it's, it's only there to, to make God's revelation available to us. Because it says, I will endeavor that she may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. But if we don't use the Word of God, we will not have them in remembrance. We have to use the Word of God. They have done their part. God has done His part. God sent 40 writers of Scripture to give us a 66-book library that will bring all of these things that we need to remember to our memory. But we need to use the Word of God. We need to preach the Word of God. And we need to have the basics of Christ, heaven, and holiness reminded to us on a continual, regular basis. We need to have good works aff affirmed to us constantly that we will keep good works to please the God that we shall soon, soon stand before. Brethren, you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ as was read to you from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9-11, through 11, and you will give an account of everything done in your body, whether it be good or evil. You will never be able to go back to this day and reclaim it. You will give an account of it. Let's live today for Him. Amen. Let's live tomorrow for Him. The Apostle Paul said, whether present or absent, we labor to be approved of Him. The Apostle Paul knew exactly what he meant by those words, and he had applied it to his own life. And knowing the terror of the Lord, I want to persuade you right now that we will be faithful to the things that God has called us to do. 
Moreover, I will endeavor that she may be able after my decease. That word decease. Nothing ends. The body sleeps and is then changed. His spirit doesn't end. You know, there's no annihilation or soul sleep taught by the word decease. We use the word deceased in the newspapers a lot. The deceased. They speak of a singular person, the deceased, meaning that person. They've departed from having their joined life of spirit and body together. The spirit's in heaven, the body's put in the ground. There's one other person in the Bible that is said to have deceased. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't think for a second that His Spirit stopped existing because He told the thief, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. So this word deceased just refers to our functioning on earth inside our body because the body goes in the ground to sleep and the Spirit goes to be with the Lord. The body returns to dust and we go to the Lord that gave us life. I will endeavor that she may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. And you know, anytime we want to remember... How do I know that I'm God's elect? Where do you go? 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11. Eight things presented as powerfully as they could be presented about giving all diligence to them. We can be reminded if we go to God's Word. Peter's made it available to us. We're able to do it. May the Lord bless us to do it. So the verses 12 through 15 are Peter saying, I'm going to be a faithful minister, and this is what a faithful minister does. He continually puts you in remind, in, in reminding, he reminds you of the important things of Christ, heaven, and holiness, so that you can, you can be prepared to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have had given to us, though it is not a pastoral epistle, it's considered a general epistle to churches in five different regions of the Roman Empire. We have pastoral instruction here that a lot of repetition should be part of preaching. And the pastor shouldn't be grievous about it because it's safe for his people. He shouldn't be grieved about it. And the congregation shouldn't be grieved about it. They should know that they need reminders because during that span of time, from hearing the Word of God on one's Lord, Lord's Day to the next Lord's Day, so much can happen. Right. And so much can discourage us. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.